Let's turn over to the book of John chapter 14. I'm going to be sharing during these meetings. There's five sessions. I don't think I mentioned this, but we do have morning sessions, 10 o'clock on Friday and Saturday. And then, uh, of course, uh, Friday and Saturday night. Saturday night is going to be at 6 p.m. instead of 7. And that allows our crew to tear down and go to bed before 3. They'll get to bed about 1.30 or something by doing that. So remember, it's 6 o'clock p.m. on Saturday. I have a teaching entitled, The Positive Ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to teach along those lines. But this is going to be an expanded, new, and improved, updated. I've been thinking about this. And the Lord has just given me so much more than what I had in this teaching that I've had out for a number of years. But I'm going to start talking about the positive ministry of the Holy Spirit and really emphasizing some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And I think that this is going to have a uh, powerful, powerful impact. Uh, One of the things that this is going to accomplish is I think one of the biggest problems that I face, one of the things that I still am renewing myself over and I deal with this in the people I minister to, is just a sense of uh, condemnation unworthiness, always focusing on what hasn't happened instead of what has happened. And, you know, I've been at this for decades and I still have to deal with that. And the people that I minister to, just so many people are not enjoying their freedom and liberty in Christ. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the very first points that I want to make here is that in John 14, 15, and 16, this is the teaching that Jesus gave his disciples the night before his crucifixion. It was some of the most important instruction he had given them just by virtue of the fact that this was his last time to really teach them and instruct them before his crucifixion. And he was going to be turning the whole thing over to this group of 11 guys. And I mean, they did some really stupid things. This very night, he told them, he says in John 14, he says, and whether I go, you know, and the way, you know, and they said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know how to get there? There's a reason they called them disciples. Amen. I mean, he was just hours away from turning his whole ministry over to these guys. And they said, "Uh, where are you going? (laughs) How do we get there? And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you'd known my Father also. And you have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. He just told them, you've seen him. And they said, oh, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. We aren't satisfied with you, but if we could see the Father, we'd be satisfied. I mean, you know what? It took a lot of faith for Jesus to leave this in the hands of those guys. You know, we now have, I don't even know how many people we have out running our schools, but if we got 16 schools and we got another, what, six or eight coming online soon, Uh, I don't know, we probably have 30, 40 people that are out there now starting schools and representing us. And you know what? That takes faith to turn something over to a person and put your name on it and say, come listen to these people. It takes faith to do that. And yet I've spent three years with these right here or even more maybe. But anyway, I've come to know them and And you know what? For Jesus to just leave and turn it over to these guys that the night before his crucifixion, they're saying, where are you going? How do we get there? Boy, I think I'd have said, Father, let's wait until next uh, Passover. They aren't ready yet. Man, that was a lot of faith on his part. 
So he was telling them instructions the night before he was going to be crucified and four different times during this one discussion with his disciples, he talked about, I'm going to send the comforter. And this is a descriptive name talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And yet, did you know, most people are familiar with these scriptures, but if we were to put a descriptive name on the Holy Spirit, did you know most Christians today would not call the Holy Spirit the comforter? They would call the Holy Spirit the accuser, the convictor, the one who shows me when I'm wrong, that gives me this feeling of being miserable, How many times have you heard somebody stand up and say, man, I was out doing this and the Holy Ghost just wouldn't leave me alone and the Holy Ghost made me miserable. And this is really descriptive of the way most people refer to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to attempt to show you through this that that is not the Holy Spirit that's doing that to you. The Holy Spirit is not the one who's making you condemned and feeling miserable and feeling like you're constantly failing. And unless you understand this, then you are attributing things to the Holy Spirit that impugns His character. And this is the reason that most people haven't really embraced the ministry of the Holy Spirit because He's been blamed for a lot of things that He's not doing. And uh, I'll be dealing with this scripture more, but in uh, John chapter 16, verse 7, He doesn't use this term, the comforter, but in verse 7, Jesus told His disciples, He says, It's actually to your advantage that I leave and go away so that the Comforter can come. It's actually more expedient for you to have the Holy Spirit than it is to have me. Again, if most of us were given a choice right now, would you rather have the Holy Spirit with you and ministering to you, or would you rather have Jesus in His physical body standing here next to you and ministering to you personally? Most every person in here would choose the physical bodily presence of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus himself says it's better to have the Holy Spirit than it is to have me in my physical body. It is so much better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you, constantly ministering and comforting you than it is to have Jesus who went around telling the woman who's taken in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more doing all of these things. Most of us don't, have, don't share the opinion of what Jesus said in John 16, 7 because we have not really appreciated the Holy Spirit. He's been maligned and we've accepted this and we attribute a lot of the guilt and condemnation and feelings of failure and unworthiness to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's not the Holy Spirit that's doing that to you. We've misunderstood it. One of the things I hope to accomplish is that, man, you understand and embrace the ministry of the Holy Spirit and respond to Him more than you ever have. And if you, we could accomplish that during these meetings, and if you left with a new zeal and love and acceptance and yielding to the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, you would never be the same. It would transform your life. And if you'll receive it, I believe God is going to do that for us. So here's some things that Jesus said to His disciples the night before His crucifixion. Let me just point out a few of these in verse... 14, or this is John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. The word another there, there's two words in the Greek that are used for another. And and in contrast, one of them means another of a different kind. This is talking about another of the same kind. 
In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to send you another comforter just like me. A person, Jesus went around and constantly ministered grace and mercy to people like Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector and totally rejected by the religious system. And he was an ungodly person who cheated people and lied and did things. And yet Jesus went to his house and showed mercy to him and comforted him and showed respect to a man that was an outcast. He took people taken in the very act of adultery and he didn't approve of her sin, but he ministered grace to her and comforted her. He, he went in with publicans and sinners. He said that it's the sick that need help and not the well. And Jesus just constantly was showing the goodness of God to people. And he says, I'm going to send you another comforter just like me. And he attributed this name to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a comforter like Jesus. And Jesus said it's actually, he, he will do better, not in the sense that God, Jesus is less than the Holy Spirit, but he will be in you. And that is so much better to have the Holy Spirit in you than to have somebody there physically. You know, again, most of us are so carnal. We get into our physical, natural realm that we would rather have somebody, a physical person, Jesus, here speaking things that we could hear audibly than to have promptings and desires and impressions from the Holy Spirit. But it's actually by Jesus' own statement, it's to our advantage to have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us, constantly building us up, constantly encouraging us. But you know what? If you accept a lot of this condemnation and the feelings that we have and attribute them to the Holy Spirit and therefore embrace these things thinking, well, God is displeased with me, then that's the reason that we haven't benefited from this is because we've embraced a lot of negative emotions and things attributed them to the Holy Spirit and they don't belong. In the 26th verse of this same chapter, verse, chapter 14, verse 26, again, Jesus said, but the comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Here again is Jesus calling the Holy Spirit the Comforter. And specifically, this is a verse that the Lord has used in my life in a really powerful way. And I mean, I depend upon this verse because He says He will teach you all things. When the Lord first touched my life, the very first thing He told me to do was to quit school. This was secular school. I was in my first year of college. And everybody in my family is, education is it. I'm the very first person in generations that didn't graduate from college. And the Lord told me to quit college. My mother disowned me. My family thought I'd lost my mind. My church told me that that couldn't be God. And they actually were going to bring it to a vote and vote me out of the church and excommunicate me for quitting school. Some of you may think I'm exaggerating, but we were a highbrow Baptist church. We were in Fort Worth, uh, next to the Fort Worth Baptist Theological Seminary, and all of the doctors uh, of divinity were the ones that filled our pulpit and they were highbrow people. And man, to say that God would tell you to quit school, they literally said they would bring it to a vote. And I said, I grew up in this church. I said, I've been here longer than you have. I said, bring it to a vote. You'll get voted out. And the guy backed down. But that's, that's what it was leading to. And you know what? I was, I was really feeling like, God, how am I ever going to prosper? And the Lord showed me this verse and said, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things, lead you into all truth, and bring to your remembrance whatsoever I have spoken unto you. 
And I have depended upon this. I tell you, the Holy Spirit will give you what I call revelation knowledge, not knowledge that just comes from the outside in, but knowledge that comes from the inside out. He will reveal things to you. I don't have, I'm not going to spend the time to explain that completely, but I just want to plant a seed here that so many people are depending upon their peanut brain to figure out the Bible and the ways of God. God did not write the Bible to your brain. He wrote it to your heart. It's spirit to spirit. It says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for therein in the gospel is the uh, faith of God revealed or the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. I can spend time on that but he's, it comes through faith. It comes from heart to heart. God wrote things by the Spirit of God and the Word of God is written to your spirit man and you have to receive it from the inside out. Your brain is involved. The Lord will explain things to you and it is not illogical. The Word of God is not illogical, but it comes from the Spirit and you have to interpret the Word by the Spirit. And this is why some people open up the Bible and say it's just so hard to understand because you can't understand the Word of God with your peanut brain. You got to use your heart and your heart inspires your mind and yes, uses your mind and thoughts, but it's the word of God that literally is quickening these things in your spirit. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's just amazing. I don't mean to criticize anybody, but as I talked to people before the service, I asked one person today, I said, what have you been doing? She was naming all of these things that were wrong from her head to her toe. And I said, what have you been doing to allow this? And she just looked at me like, well, I, I didn't allow it. I said, Satan can't just do this stuff to you. You act like you're powerless, like you have nothing. You're the one that's with the authority of God. You're the one that's the righteousness of God. Why do you let the devil do these things to you? And yet most people, oh, I don't have anything to do with this. I didn't ask for arthritis. No, but when you had a pain in your joint, instead of fighting it and, I mean, drawing a line in the sand and say, I will not have arthritis. You accepted it in that joint and then in the next joint. And pretty soon you're stoved up and you're in a wheelchair and wondering why did, why did God allow this? God doesn't allow it. But it's amazing how people don't see this. It's because they're just thinking of things naturally. They're going, well, the doctor says that this, nobody knows the cause. I don't know all of the exact avenues that the devil uses, but I can guarantee it's the devil that's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And you're the one that has the righteousness and the power and the authority over the devil. And it, this has to come by revelation and you just have to understand these things. It just amazes me how people can be so spiritually dull. And don't think I'm, I'm not mad at you. You're here. Amen. I'm not trying to run off everybody that came. I'm glad you came. And I'm saying, brothers and sisters, the Word of God, we've got the power of the Holy Spirit. And this verse says, He is sent to teach you all things and lead you into all truth and bring all things to your remembrance. And yet, by observation, that isn't happening. Not because the Holy Spirit hasn't been commissioned and isn't capable of doing it, but we just aren't receiving. 
And again, in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir. You're the ones that took the time to come to this meeting. Nearly half of you came from outside of this area and you've, you've devoted time to it. Praise God for that. And yet, many of us just aren't giving the priority to the Word of God. This is what happens in our Bible school. We see people come and they make a decision to come and they sit under the Word. And I've got this uh, new teaching, this book entitled Effortless Change. A lot of people think that's impossible. You can't have effortless change. But what it is, the effort is just to get into the Word and then the Word just effortlessly changes you. We see this happen. The Word of God starts coming alive when it's communicated in spirit and in truth and it changes people's lives. And we see people come in one way and I mean just transform. I'm thinking of one lady right now that when she first came to school was in a wheelchair. She had multiple sclerosis. And this woman, I don't, uh, Mary Lynn's, I don't remember when she came, but maybe it could have been as much as 10 years ago. And she was in a wheelchair, but within six months, she was up and beginning to start getting around on a walker. She went on her missions trip in the second year and walked around on her own. And now she still uses a cane every once in a while, but she works in our phone center and answers the phone. And this woman has had multiple sclerosis. It doesn't get better and yet hers has gotten better and she's walking around and it's miraculous the way that the Word of God just changes people when you start sitting under the Word. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We aren't supposed to just go through life singing further along. We'll understand why. Further along, we'll know all about it. When we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be in the sweet by and by. You know, it can be not only in the sweet by and by, but in the rough now and now. It's not just pie in the sky by and by, but it's steak on the plate while you wait. You can enjoy victory now and the Holy Spirit will teach you these things. You know, I praise God for the way that he's taught me and I'm not saying these things in a prideful way. I just, but it's not just for me. It's not because I'm a minister that God wants to teach me the word. God wants every Joe Blow and Jane Doe in the body of Christ to know the Word of God. You should not have to depend upon a pastor or a minister your whole life. Now, none of us start spiritually mature. And so, yes, we need the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher to help perfect the saints. And so I'm not diminishing that. All of us need somebody in our life to speak to us. But you shouldn't be 20, 30, 40 years old and still sucking your thumb. The Holy Spirit is sent to teach you and explain the Word of God to you. But it comes through the Spirit. And this is one of the reasons I believe God led me to minister on this about the Holy Spirit is because we aren't taking advantage of it. The Holy Spirit has been commissioned and sent and lives on the inside of you to give you revelation, knowledge, and to make the Word of God come alive so that you can be walking in the fullness of God. And we just aren't taking advantage of it. We're going around just like people that don't have the Holy Spirit. They have a recession and Christians cave just like an unbeliever and think, oh, well, what can we do? When the Bible clearly says, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And yet most Christians think exactly like an unbeliever. If there's a hard time in our society, they expect to have a hard time too because they don't see themselves being different. 
But you've got the same Spirit of God that moved on the face of the waters and created this world and created light and created everything. You've got the creative force of God living on the inside of you and we're expecting to get the same results as people that don't know God. Something's wrong with this picture. You need to see yourself as, man, I'm different. I'm supernatural. And then they talk about the swine flu or the Hong Kong flu or the whatever flu. And, and, and the Christians run in fear and start getting all of the shots and doing everything and confessing. I'm going to get sick. Just I know if anybody gets it, I'll get it. You got the raising from the dead power on the inside of you. And you're acting like a person that doesn't even have it. The Bible says we are alive. The Bible says people that don't know Jesus are dead. There ought to be a difference between a live and a dead person. And yet a friend of mine talked about having a church service and he said that a person died during his preaching and they called 911 and they carried out half the congregation before they found the dead person. (laughs) I mean, some of us, our churches are so dead. It's pitiful. You need to look alive. The buzzards are circling, praise God. There ought to be a difference in us. We've got the power of God on the inside of us. And yet we aren't using it. I find Christians all the time that are in whatever the, it could be economic, it could be be a physical problem, it could be marital problem, it could be whatever, but they get to thinking just like, who am I? I'm nobody. And they get to expecting the same results as their unsaved neighbor. They expect to grieve just like a person that doesn't have the Spirit of God on the inside of them. They expect to have struggles in their finances just like the people that don't know God. They expect to have all of the problems. Something's wrong with this. You got the life of God on the inside and he's sent specifically to teach you all things. All things. Did you know in the Greek that that word all means all? Amen. It literally means the absence of none. Whatever it is that you need, the Holy Spirit is sent to teach you. I don't know if I'll get to this during this series. But in Romans chapter 8, it says that he makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And uh, I'm I'm sure I won't get there. But did you know this isn't just talking about speaking in tongues. This is groanings that can't be uttered. It's even different than that. Jesus groaned in the Spirit twice in John chapter 11 before he saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Because the Holy Spirit is sent to help your infirmities. Jesus didn't have any sin, but he did have an infirmity. A body. And a natural mind. It wasn't sinful. It wasn't corrupted. But even a natural mind, sinless natural mind could not wrap its brain around a person who had been dead for four days and already his body was decaying, coming back to life. And that was an infirmity. And he groaned in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit helped him to get beyond just human, natural things and into the supernatural realm. If Jesus, who was sinless, needed the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit and he groaned in the Spirit, man, we need it. And the truth is we've got it, but we just aren't using it. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8 where it says that the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. That word there, I won't even attempt to pronounce it, but it's a compound word and it means he takes hold together with us. And the significance of that is that the Holy Spirit doesn't do it for you. It's not the Holy Spirit just interceding for you. If it was, every one of us in here would have the perfect power of God flowing in our life. But He takes hold together with us. 
When you start interceding and operating in faith and building yourself up, then the Holy Spirit comes alongside and helps you and takes to get hold together with you, but he will not do it for you. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. It's a cooperation between the two of us. You do what you can do and you use all of the faith that you've got and the Holy Spirit will come along and supernaturally energize it and make it work in a supernatural fashion. But what the average person is doing is getting into fear and speaking their doubt and their unbelief and confessing, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. Uh, You know, what makes me think I'm going to get any different results than these people over here? And you look at yourself only in a human standpoint and because of it, the Holy Spirit can't take hold together with that. He's not going to agree with your negativism and your fear and your doubt and your unbelief. Amen. I'm preaching better than you're listening. Man, I could just camp here. I'm not going to do it in the name of Jesus. I got some things I really want to get to, but this is good. You know, I ministered to a group of pastors at our ministers conference a few years back about the Holy Spirit. And you would think, well, pastors know this spirit filled tongue talking pastors. And you know, I just ministered about simple things like speaking in tongues, building up yourself on your most holy faith, encouraging yourself. Isaiah 28, this is the rest. This is the refreshing wherewith you make the weary to rest. And I said, if you're weary, why don't you speak in tongues? Because that's what it's given for. And yet how many of them were weary and they were facing burnout and they had gone and they had asked people to pray for them and they had gone to ministers' conferences and they'd done everything except... Flip the switch on the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit just build them up and edify them. And you would be shocked at some of the responses I heard from ministers, good ministers, how long it had been since they had really been building themselves up in the Holy Ghost and praying. Man, we've got the power of the Holy Spirit and we just aren't letting Him work because He's not going to do it for us. We have to stand and activate. When you pray in tongues and start building yourself up. It's just like you flip a switch and start the motor running. You start the power of God. And yet there are people sitting right here that you're in life and death situation. You're in different, difficult situations. You're discouraged and you're, you're praying and you're asking God to do something and you're asking other people to pray for you. And you may have come to this meeting absolutely desperate. And yet many of you haven't prayed in tongues in weeks, in months. There may be some people here that don't even pray in tongues and didn't even know that that was available. Man, you need this baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. I tell you, we've got the comforter, the one that it says over in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, comforts us in all of our tribulation so that we can also be able to comfort other people. We've got the comforter on the inside. And yet how many people in this room, and again, I say you're the cream of the crop. Praise God for you coming out on a Thursday night. I'm not scolding you. And yet how many of us in here, the fanatics, are not comforted, are discouraged? And yet we've got the comforter living on the inside of us. It's not the fact that God didn't make the provision. It's not the fact that he didn't send the Holy Spirit to comfort us and lead us into all truth and bring all things to our remembrance. It's just the fact that we're looking everywhere else. We're looking to people. We're looking to things 
to edify us. There are some people that when you get discouraged, you go shopping because that gives you a lift. There's others that you go to sports. There's others that you go do whatever. There's some of you that will turn to a bottle or turn to a pill or something else. When the Holy Spirit is sent to encourage you and comfort you, but you've got to take advantage of it. We've got to recognize that this is why he gave them to us. You know, I've got a teaching that goes along with this entitled uh, The Four Keys to Staying Full of God. And it goes right along here that the Holy Spirit is sent to keep you encouraged and to keep you full of God. To constantly bring all of these things to your remembrance. It says to glorify the Lord, to magnify Jesus, to lead you into all truth. There is no excuse for us not being encouraged. There is no excuse for us being, not being comforted. Now, I'm not saying that to condemn you or to make you feel bad. That's contrary to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying it to encourage you and to enlighten you that God has provided everything. It's just us not taking advantage. We haven't fully appreciated it. If you are born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost and speak in tongues, you ought to be able to overcome anything that the devil is throwing at you. Anything. Back when I first got turned on to the Lord, some of you are old enough to remember the charismatic move. You couldn't go anywhere without them preaching on these things about the importance of the Holy Spirit. And man, if you'll receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit from this time forth, you're going to start seeing victory and power and healing and deliverance and joy and peace. And I mean, people's expectancy level was through the roof. And you saw people baptized in the Holy Ghost at every single service. And yet you can go into many of the spirit-filled churches that I go into now and I'll give an invitation and see two and three hundred people come up in a spirit-filled church to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And they've been going there for a year or two years and they've never heard a message on the Holy Spirit. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Man, the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift God ever gave the world outside of the actual atonement of Jesus. Man, to give us the Holy Spirit and all of these things, the Comforter and us not take advantage of it is just, it's something that it's not God's fault. We just aren't taking advantage of it. I hope that and pray that during this meeting that, man, you get fired up to start drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like having a battery that provides you with this power and we don't even turn the switch. We never turn it on. Man, God has given us the power. You receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. We just need to start using it. Amen. In John chapter 15, let me read this verse to you. In verse 26, he says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Boy, I could spend a lot of time on that, but this isn't just saying that he'll bring up the name of Jesus. He will show you Jesus. He will reveal Jesus to you, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit will explain that to you. Whatever situation you're in, there's a way out of that situation. The Holy Spirit will testify and show you Jesus and show you how to apply that. He will show you the truth. All you need is the truth. Again, 
I'm not trying to scold you, but I'm saying that brothers and sisters, we're plugged into this world more than any other generation of Christians, I believe, that have ever walked on the face of this planet. You are watching way too much television outside of my TV program. <laughs> we're, we're getting too much information from the world. And you're being told things like this is the worst recession since the Great Depression. That is an absolute lie. That is an absolute lie. It's not even close. Did you know in the Great Depression, anybody know what the foreclosure rate during the Great Depression around 19, I think it was in 1934, 35? It got up to 25.9% foreclosure rate on homes. Did you know it's topped out around 4 to 5% in the United States has been the worst? And they're comparing this to the Great Depression. Did you know that the unemployment rate in 1982 when Reagan came into office was 10.8%? In the early 80s, in the 80s, it was one of the biggest booms we ever had. And the unemployment rate hadn't been that high. Did you know, they say unemployment is as bad as all that. Did you know that during the Great Depression it hit 50%? Or I may, have, I may have reversed that. I think it was 50% foreclosure rate and 25.9% unemployment. Excuse me. I think I reversed those. But anyway, still, it's not even close. And yet, see, most of us are listening to all of this stuff. And because of it, it's painting a, a fear on the inside of us. It's, making, it's taking away our hope. It's discouraging us because we're listening to this. But the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, if you would pray in the Holy Spirit, He'll tell you that, hey, God is going to supply your need according to His riches in glory. It has nothing to do with this U.S. economy. Many of you are saying, but man, I had so much money in the stock market, I took a beating. Did you know that since the stock market went down, and Jamie and I have made 61% profit? When the stock market went down 50-something percent, we made 61% profit. Some of you are thinking, Who's you, who do you use? <laughs> it's not who we use. Matter of fact, the guy who invests our money, we went and talked to him not long ago, and he says, you know, all of my clients are doing good. But he says, you guys are doing better than anybody. And he says... It's the same investor. I'm not doing anything different. And yet your accounts are better than anybody else. It's not who's investing our stuff for us. It's our faith in God and the fact that the Holy Spirit keeps us focused on the Lord. The Holy Spirit will show you these things, but we are just plugged in. We, a sickness comes through in the body of Christ, fears and shakes and trembles the same way that unbelievers do. Recession comes through and unbelievers don't have any worse fear about it than many believers. Something's wrong with this. I tell you, the Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus that He's the comforter. We just aren't drawing on this. We need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is an encourager to comfort us, to build us up. In John chapter 16, verse 7, this is the verse I referred to earlier. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I... Go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. This is four times that I've read. In one night, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, not the Accuser, not the Condemner. Again, most Christians think that that sense of unworthiness and condemnation and failure is the Holy Spirit. 
They think it's the Holy Spirit that's making you feel and aware of your sins. That is not what the Holy Spirit's ministry is. That is not the Holy Spirit that's doing that to you. Look over here in 1 John chapter 3 and let me, this is going to be a radical truth to some of you that if you can understand this, it would revolutionize your life. I'm going to give you a key here that if you could get hold of this, it would literally change your life. 1 John chapter 3. And in verse 18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You know, most people just read that and go on and don't think about it. But there are some radical statements right here. He says, hereby talking about love was in the first verse. When you love other people and you're walking in love, turning the other cheek instead of avenging yourself and walking in selfishness. It says, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You know, right here, this is an amazing fact that most people don't think of, but your heart has to be assured. Most Christians think, no, if I was right with God, if everything was right in my life, I'd just know it. We think that anytime there is a thought that I'm not the way I should be, that, oh God, I failed you, I haven't measured up, I put on another five pounds when I've already committed to lose weight and to take care of myself. And we just live with a constant sense of failure. Most people embrace that and think, well, this is just the way that it is. And I just have to live with it. This scripture is saying you have to assure your heart. It doesn't just automatically work. People think if God really, if, I, if the Lord really loved me, if the Lord was passionate about me, I'd just know it. No, you wouldn't. Because God is a spirit. And God moves in the spirit realm. You have to convince yourself of the love of God. You have to minister the love of God to yourself. You have to assure your heart. You have to establish your heart. You have to build yourself up. You have to come against thoughts and feelings and emotions that are contrary to what the Word of God says. You can't just let feelings go. Man, I could spend weeks on this because I really believe that our generation has enthroned feelings to a place that only God should occupy. And we go by how we feel. And we have, if you feel it, then that means it's reality. That is not true at all. You know, I could walk up to you tonight and I could just bold face lie to you and say, hey, we just got a call. I could have one of my employees come up and say, we just got a call and somebody, your husband, your wife, your child, your, your relative, somebody died in a car wreck. And it could be a total lie. No reality to it. Nothing. There is no chemical, physical thing that just dictates that that is going to cause depression and discouragement. It could be a total lie. And yet, if you believe it, you would begin to start experiencing grief, sorrow, hurt, pain, panic. 
whatever emotion you could imagine, and there'd be no reality to it. It's just like people that put on these uh, virtual reality helmets and they see themselves on a roller coaster and they're sitting completely still. They aren't moving at all and yet they get motion sickness because they see something and people have actually thrown up from motion sickness and they never moved. There is no reality to it at all, but that's the way that they see it. That's the way that they think. I had one of our Bible college students that did a talk and put it on tape and gave it to me. And they were talking about how that they ministered to a uh, friend's child. These were very good friends of theirs. And it was their child that had been very rebellious and was living in sin and finally came to this woman. And the woman was asking her what was going on. And she was telling about how her parents were so terrible and so mean and so harsh and stuff. And the woman said, I knew the parents. They were good friends of mine. It says they weren't perfect parents, but none of the stuff this girl was saying was true. It was just her perception. What she was calling mean is they made her go to church. They wouldn't let her go out and smoke and dope and drink and do things. That, and so she interpreted that as her parents were mean. She said the parents were loving. They loved this girl. But anyway, as she ministered to the girl, she said, I didn't tell her any of that because it didn't matter whether it was real or not. To her, it was real. And so I dealt with her on how to forgive her parents. And when I heard that, I grabbed, it was a cassette tape and I <laughs> chunked it out the window. I couldn't stand, I got so mad, I said, that is wrong, wrong, wrong. But people like, well, but I feel it. So it doesn't matter if it's real or not. If I feel it, then it's real. Pull your thumb out of your mouth and grow up. That is not true. We've enshrined feelings to a place of, well, I just don't feel the love of God. Well, then you're wrong. And you're entitled to be wrong. I'm not criticizing. I'm not mad at you, but I'm not going to agree with you. Or we'd both be wrong. If you don't feel the love of God, your feelings are wrong. And so instead of standing up and acting like a man or a woman and saying, in the name of Jesus, I command my feelings to line up with what the Word of God says. God commended His love towards me and that while I was yet a sinner, He died for me. Much more now, Romans 5, 8 and 9, much more now does He love me. And so I just command my feelings to get in line. God does love me. God is pleased with me. God does carry my picture in his wallet and I don't care what I feel like and I don't care what I've done. His love isn't conditional based on whether or not I'm doing everything right. And I just make myself start believing the right thing. There's many people in here that wouldn't do that because you say, well, I, I just wouldn't be sincere. I wouldn't be honest. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm telling you that this is how I'm feeling. I'm just saying you're being carnal is what you are. You can call it honest, but you're just being carnal. You're actually a hypocrite. Somebody, well, no, I'd be a hypocrite if I said that I feel the love of God when I don't. You don't have to say you feel it. But you know what the truth is? That in the spirit, God is looking at you in the spirit. And in the spirit, you've got love, joy, peace. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. That is what you've got. And God's love is not conditional for you. It doesn't come and go based on what your performance is and whether you've been studying the word enough and going to church enough. God's love for you is consistent. 
And the Holy Spirit, see, is sent to constantly be telling us these things and building us up and encouraging us. And yet we just don't feel the love of God. Maybe it's because you've been watching as the stomach turns on the television and you've been watching adultery and people fighting and lying. And you know what? That's going to make you feel bad. It's going to make, if you watch the news, you're going to feel bad. If you don't have enough problems on your own, they'll take the problems from the other side of the world and they'll dump them into your living room. You'll find out things that, you know, past generations have never known and they will pump you pain to get all that put into your house. And you're watching the problems of the world and wondering, why am I depressed? It must be because God's disappointed with me. No, it's because you're carnal. And you're actually a hypocrite because in your spirit, you got love, joy, and peace. You know, when I was in Vietnam, they had this song that was real popular then about, I've got joy like a fountain. I've got peace like a river. I've got love like the ocean in my soul. And I wouldn't sing it because I said, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. I don't have love. I don't have joy. I don't have peace. I'm just going to be honest. And I wouldn't sing that. Other people would sing it. I wouldn't sing it because I said, I'm going to be honest. If I can't be anything else, I can be at least be honest. And then when I got out of Vietnam, I found out that in my spirit, I had love, joy, peace. Love. And I found out that the whole time I was trying to be honest, I'd just been stupid. <laughs> I was being a hypocrite and the truth was in my spirit. My spirit was just jumping up and down and doing flip-flops and enjoying the presence of God. And I was not in the spirit, I was in the flesh, going by how I felt. And I made a decision right then. I am not going to let how I feel dictate to me what I am. I'm going to go by what the Word of God says. I'm going to pull my thumb out of my mouth and grow up. And I am going to assure my heart. And when I first started, when I first came to the revelation of that I was the righteousness of God. I'd been taught my whole life that all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64. And that's a true statement. If you're just talking about self-righteousness. But in our born again spirit, I am now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. And when I first saw that, I remember I went and looked in a mirror. And I looked myself eyeball to eyeball. And I would point my finger and say, Andrew, you are righteous. And when I first said that, all the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I just thought God was going to strike me dead. I said, God, don't, don't kill me. I'm trying to say what the word says. And it took months of me speaking to myself and saying, you are righteous. You are blessed. You do have the power of God on the inside of you. And when I first started saying, I thought, well, I, I'm a hypocrite. That's because I was living in the flesh. And to me, that was reality. And it took a while for me to renew my mind and realize I'm a new person in Christ Jesus. And in the spirit, I do have the righteousness of God. I do have the power of God. And God does love me. And I don't care if I feel like it or not. That has zero to do with anything. God loves me because he said he loved me. And the Holy Spirit, if you will allow him, will help you. But you have to assure your heart. Your heart will tell you, oh, God doesn't love you. Ain't what Andrew's saying might work for him. It might work for Dr. Anderson. It might work for somebody else, but who are you? And you have to assure your heart that I am a son or a daughter of God and that there is no respecter of persons and that God has, and you've got to speak this to yourself. And there's some of you that think, well, if I was 
If God really loved me that way, I'd just feel it. I'd just know it. No, you wouldn't. It's in the spirit realm. It's not in the physical realm. You're going to have to assure your heart. You're going to have to tell yourself, God will never leave me nor forsake me because there's times that your situations will look like God left you. It'll look like that you're hung out to dry. It'll look like that things aren't working and you have to speak to yourself and assure yourself and tell yourself that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. You have to do things to assure your heart. The Lord used uh, Luke chapter 24 supernaturally to speak to me about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they were sad and spent nearly two hours walking with the resurrected Jesus, the very one that they were sad about. Jesus was with them and they didn't even recognize what they had and they were sad with Jesus raised from the dead. Their eyes were holding, it says in Mark 16, 12, that they couldn't see him. That means they saw him, but they didn't perceive who it was. And the Lord used those verses to show me how that the Lord has never left me. He's always with me. And I mean, it became revelation. God spoke it to me. For years, I tried to find some of these glow-in-the-dark letters that you could put on the ceiling so that when I'd wake up during the night, it'll say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I never did it, but I've, I've thought of that a hundred times. And anyway, I finally got me a picture of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus talking to Jesus. And I have that hanging in our house. And I looked at that just the other day. And, and I do things like that to remind me, to jar my memory and say, I don't care what it feels like. Jesus is with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And I minister it to myself. The scripture says, stir yourself up. Stir up the gift that's on the inside of you. If you don't stir yourself up, you're going to sink to the bottom. You got to stir yourself up. Amen. You got to assure your heart. And yet most Christians, when they come into something negative, it's like, oh God, please encourage me. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, I believe it's verse 4 and 5, that David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. You need to encourage yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but you've got to start doing it. And then the Holy Spirit takes hold together with you and begins to encourage you. But most people are just, they're coming like, oh God, I'm discouraged again. Would you please do something? And you just wait on a lightning bolt to hit you. And you wait on an epiphany and you're praying that God will just send two dogs going this way and three cats going that way and that'll be a sign and then, oh God, do something special. Let a goosebump run up and down my spine. Uh, God, have somebody call my name out or do something. And we're looking for something physical and carnal like that. You need to encourage yourself. You need to stand up and start building yourself up and then the Holy Spirit will join in with you and energize it and push you beyond just the natural realm and get into the Spirit. But you've got to start encouraging yourself. I couldn't tell you how many people have come up to me and says, would you please pray for me that God would just pour out his love? I don't feel the love of God. Would, would you please pray that God will pour his love out in my life? And it's all I can do to keep from slapping them. <laughs> I mean, the spirit of slap wants to come all over me when a person says something like, some people think, well, what's wrong with that? You're impugning God's character. It's... 
The reason you aren't feeling this is because God must turn the spigot off. God's never turned the spigot off. God has never quit loving you. He's never quit releasing his power. He's never quit releasing joy and peace. God is always flowing towards you like Niagara Falls. God is never the one who's quit giving. If you don't feel the love of God, the proper thing to do is come and say, would you please pray for me? Because I know that God loves me, but I don't feel it. Something's wrong with my receiver. If you will come to me and say that, I'll pray with you and I'll help you to fix yourself. But to impugn God's character and say, would you just pray that God will pour out his love? As if God isn't motivated enough to do it. But maybe if I would pray, he will respond to me. If it wasn't for me, if it wasn't for all the great intercessors, God wouldn't do a thing. That's absolutely wrong. God loves you more than you love you. God loves you more than I love you. I had a couple ask me to pray for their daughter tonight and I agreed with them. And part of my prayer was, I said, Father, I know that you love this girl in France more than her parents love her, more than I love her. We don't have to beg you. God, you love her. We just agree with you. And then I started speaking the word and releasing the power of God. But it's wrong to approach God as God. Why aren't you healing me? God, why aren't you blessing me? How come I don't have joy? God, why aren't you releasing your power in my life? God is never your problem. God loves you. He's already provided everything. He's anticipated every problem you'll ever have. There is never a recession that's going to hit the United States that God didn't know about. And before the problem exists, God already has the supply created. You don't have to go to God and say, Oh God, have you been watching the evening news? Are you aware of the plague that is going through this country? Are you aware of this? And oh God, and we have to get a group of people together to pray and intercede and beg God to release his power. Wrong, 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 wrong. You are impugning the character and the nature of God. And God has already provided everything. And then he gave us the Holy Ghost to release it and to stir it up and to energize our thing. And it's not God who hasn't given. It's us that aren't receiving. You've got to stir yourself up. You have to assure your heart. David encouraged himself in the Lord. You need to start encouraging yourself. You need to assure yourself. Let me give you some definitions. Here, I wrote some of these words down. The English word assure came from the Greek word, and I won't try to pronounce it, P-E-I-T-H-O. And here's what it means. It means to convince by argument, by analogy, to pacify or conciliate by other fair means. Reflexive, it means to assent. So think about this. You have to convince yourself that you are dwelling in God and that God is dwelling in you. And brothers and sisters, most of us aren't convinced. All we've got to have is the Bible says, by his stripes you're healed. All you've got to have is just a, a doctor say something to you and whoops, there it goes. Well, I know that God said this, but the doctor says this and you just immediately let go of your faith and go with what the doctor says. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know, not many years ago, uh, my board asked me to get a physical because of uh, insurance stuff. 
and take out an insurance policy, and yeah, key man policy, I think is what it's called, something like that. So anyway, I went and got this test done, and they put, you know, it was one of these treadmill tests, and they put these things all over your chest, and they wanted to shave my chest. And I told that nurse, I said, this is virgin hair. It has never been touched. So anyway, I convinced them and they decided to just stick these things on there without shaving my chest. And after about 12, 13 minutes into the treadmill test, I was sweating and those things started falling off. So here I was jogging and I was holding two of them. The nurse was holding two of them and the doctor was holding two of them. And I was trying to run and it was comical and those things were falling off. So anyway, after I got through with this test, I told the doctor about my son being raised from the dead. And I'd been witnessing to him. And and anyway, after this test was over, this doctor was looking through this chart and he, 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 everything was fine. And then he got to one point and he started grunting and hmm, doing all of this stuff. And I was looking at him and, and he says, oh, this is not good. And he started writing this down. He says, I've got a doctor here. I want you to, I don't want you to go back to your office. You go straight over. You see him right now. We may put you in the hospital and we might do surgery on you before the day is over. He says, you got a serious heart condition. Now, what would you do if your doctor did that to you? I can guarantee you the vast majority of people in here would cave. You know, I looked at him for a minute just like, I can't believe this. This isn't right. I felt great. I believe the word of God. And I just looked at him for a second and then finally I said, that's a lie. I said, I don't believe that. And this doctor just looked at me. I guess he wasn't used to people calling him a liar. He says, what are you saying? And I said, you look at that piece of paper and tell me that that says that I got a serious heart he says, well, you've got one place out of 15 minutes on the treadmill. You got one place that's one, I forgot, hundredth or thousandth of a degree off. And he says, everybody's heart's a little bit different. You could be perfectly well. I just think we ought to go get you checked out. And I said, that's not what you said. You said I had a serious heart problem. I said, you lied to me. And he says, well, I was just trying to tell you that we need to go. And I said, you lied to me. And I got on this doctor's case and started saying this stuff to him. And you know what? This guy just took that piece of paper and tore it up. And he says, you're fine. Get out of here. (laughs) But he failed me. He failed me on that test and I couldn't get any insurance. And so anyway, I I went to this uh, doctor and had a nuclear stress test done where they put this dye in you and do this stuff. And the doctors told me that those treadmill tests are 50% wrong. They're only right half of the time. He says, you cannot trust those things. He says, these nuclear stress tests are like 99% correct. And I took it and it turns out I have the heart of a 17 year old. But you know what? It turned out that if I would have listened to this guy, I would have let fear in. Men's hearts fail them for fear. Most people, what the Word of God says, they aren't convinced of what the Word of God says. They haven't convinced their heart. They don't truly believe. They're just trying it. There may be some of you who are saying, all right, I think I'll try and assure myself. And so tonight you go in and you start saying, God does love me. I am blessed. 
And you just try it and see if something happens. And if you don't feel something, if a goosebump doesn't run up and down your spine, then you think, well, I tried that and that didn't work. That's not convincing yourself. You have to convince yourself by argument. You need to argue with yourself. Some of you feel like, well, there's nothing special about me. I don't have any gifts or talent. I'm nobody special. That's not what the Word of God says. If Jesus died for you, you're pretty special. If Jesus put that value on your life, you are worth a lot. And I don't care what you feel like. Somebody said, but I just don't feel like I'm special. Well, then you're wrong. What can I say? Stand in front of a mirror and say, you're a liar. You're deceived. You're wrong. You are special. God loves you. Start encouraging yourself. Tell yourself something positive. Start speaking what the Word of God says. And convince yourself. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. And you know what? You can either speak death over yourself and say, Well, if I wash my car, I know it'll rain. You know what that is? That's death. That's a curse. Thinking, I, you know, it, whatever I do... It's not going to work out good. If anybody wins a lottery, it won't be me. If, you know, you just, you're always speaking negative over yourself. That's death. Or you can sit there and speak life and begin to say, man, I'm blessed. Whatever I set my hand unto is blessed. If I get to doing this, it's going to work. I will prosper. I will be blessed. And some of you think, but I don't really believe that. Well, then convince yourself of it. You know what the Word says. Take the Word and start speaking it and acting on it until you get to where you really believe it. You need to convince yourself. That's what this word assure means. And also, it used the word pacify. It says to pacify or conciliate. Here's what the word pacify means. It says to ease the anger or agitation of. Do any of you ever feel agitated? Not only at people, but you know what? You get agitated at yourself. You get put out and think, you know what? I blew it again. I wasn't going to eat like this over Christmas and New Year's. I had one of my employees come up to me this uh, Christmas and he says, man, if these holidays don't get over, I'm going to have to go buy me a larger pair of pants. <laughs> and you know what? There's some of you that just, you get, you're down on yourself because you failed again. You did this. You lost your temper. You did something. And so... You are agitated not only at other people, but at yourself. And you know what? God loves you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. But you think God is as upset with you as, as you are. God doesn't have your attitude. God sees you in the Spirit. John chapter 4 verse 24 says that God is a Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You can say that a lot of different ways. But if you're going to truly connect with the Lord... If you are going to be united with the Lord, you're going to have to do it in the Spirit. And in the Spirit, you are perfect. In the Spirit, you aren't fat. You aren't stupid. You aren't ugly. You aren't weak. You aren't discouraged. You've got love, joy, and peace. And God sees you in the Spirit. And God is not disappointed with you the way that you're disappointed with you. It's like a little kid riding a bike and you fall off the bike and the little kid just wants to quit. I can't do it. But the parents always there. oh, you can do this. Get up and try again. The parent will encourage you. The comforter will come and say, yeah, you can do it. He'll cheer for you. 
The Holy Spirit isn't sitting there saying, you sorry thing, you failed again. Many of us are thinking that that's the Holy Spirit convicting us. It's not. It's your own conscience that's convicting you. The Holy Spirit is saying, get up and try it again. You can do this. We treat our kids better than we believe that God treats His kids. We believe that God is hard on us. And every time you've messed up, He's just so upset at you because you've messed up again. That is not the ministry of God. The Holy Spirit isn't doing that. You are the one that's condemning yourself. It can be inspired by the devil, but in most cases, it's not even the devil that's condemning you. You're doing a bang-up job of condemning yourself. The Holy Spirit, I mean, the devil doesn't even have to try Holy Spirit can go on vacation. Most of us are just doing a wonderful job. I believe sometimes the Holy Spirit actually takes notes and says, Man, I have never thought of condemning people over this. And he sees you doing it. And he says, That's a good one. And he writes this down. I think he may be taking notes from us. We do a great job of condemning ourselves and making ourselves look bad. You have to convince yourself. You have to pacify Man, those are strong words. Again, this word pacify means to ease the anger or agitation of, to calm. No, I couldn't tell you how many times that I've had situations come up that could just make you really uh, anything but calm. Stress. But did you know that it's up to you to calm that storm? To take these things and say that, man, in the spirit, I know that God is seeing me, that God anticipated these problems before I got into it. And you just calm that and you speak to it. I don't know if I'm helping you or not. If you're listening, this ought to help you. But you have to assure your heart. And here is the word conciliate. That was also in this definition of the word assure. The word conciliate means to win over, placate. You have to win over your own thoughts, your own hearts. Here's what the word placate means. It means to ally the anger of, appease. Man, these are some strong statements. And again, most people don't think this way. They think if God really loved me, if I was really anointed, I'd just feel it. I just know it. We've enshrined feelings to where we think that they are God and feelings are fickle. You can feel something because you didn't get enough sleep because of all kinds of things. You cannot depend on feelings. If you've got wonderful feelings, enjoy them. But if your feelings don't go along with what you want them to, change them. I don't like bad feelings, so I just don't go by them. I don't accept them. I don't receive them. I know some of you think, man, where did you come from? The word. Look at this next verse over here in 1 John chapter 3. It says if, uh, in verse 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. You have to assure your heart that you are of the truth. And in verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You know, this is an amazing statement. I feel condemned. And so we just assume that if we feel condemned, that must be God. 
And yet the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The word no there is it's an absolute negative. It means absolutely zilch, nada, zero, no condemnation. The rest of that verse goes on to say, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And some people have taken that and have totally done away with all of the benefit of the first part of that verse. And they say, well, there's no condemnation when I'm walking in the spirit and when I'm doing everything right and then God's not going to condemn me. There would be no need to say that there's no condemnation if you were perfect. This isn't what it's talking about. I looked up 16 translations of this verse. And did you know 11 of them even left that phrase about who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit off? But I do believe it's supposed to be there because there is condemnation if you aren't walking in the spirit. But it's not from God. Like God is never going to condemn you, period. You could stop the verse right there. There is no condemnation from God. Now, that's easier for me to say than it is for you to believe. Most people have not been taught this. Most people in here are not going to really in your heart agree with that because you think that, no, God is the one who's nailed you when you've gone out and sinned. If you can come back tomorrow, I'm going to start dealing with this about how God deals with sin and it'll revolutionize the way you look at this. But there is zero condemnation from God towards you as a born-again believer, period. God is never, ever, ever going to condemn you, period. But there still is condemnation. If you left this place and said, oh man, no condemnation. And so you get on the freeway and just start going 100 miles an hour. You know what? They're going to condemn you. They will stop you. They will issue a ticket. You could go rob something. They will put you in jail. And there is condemnation. There is judgment against you. You can still be condemned by your own conscience, by society, by other people. So it's perfectly accurate for this verse to say, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Because there is condemnation. There are consequences of your action. But it's also correct to say that there is no condemnation from God ever towards you. God never, ever condemns a born again believer. God is not condemning you. And so again, go back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This is saying that condemnation doesn't come from God if you feel condemned. Here's the definition of condemn. Let me give that to you. The word condemn means to express disapproval of. And then it also says denounce. The word denounce means vehement, vehement disapproval. If you feel that God is disapproved of you, that is not God who's given you that feeling. It's your own heart that has condemned you. Man, I wished I could sit down with every one of you individually because this is something that most people, you're hearing me say this, but it's going right over the heads of a lot of people. God is not disapproving of you. And many of you think, he has to be because I'm living so bad. You're disapproving of you. But see again, God is the spirit. John 4, 24 
God looks at you in the spirit. And when you get born again in your spirit, you are identical to Jesus. God isn't looking at you the way you are looking at you. God isn't looking at your flesh. Now, He's God and He knows that it's there and He's aware of it and He will help you to overcome problems in your life. But God doesn't see you the way you see yourself. He sees you in Christ and He sees you perfect. He sees you pure. He sees you holy, even when you are living in sin. And there's some of you that just can't embrace that in your mind. That is so contrary to religion. Religious traditions and doctrines of man have made the word of God of none effect. We've been taught that God's disapproving of you because you aren't doing this. Because you dip or cuss or chew or go with those who do. Because you've done something wrong. God is upset. And you've embraced this disapproval as God ministering to you. I'm telling you that's not God. This says if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. That shows you that you experience condemnation that does not come from God. And put that together with Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. God is not ministering condemnation to you. God is not disapproving of you. He is not the one that's given you this sense of failure and disapproval. Man, that's big. Religion today, I hate to say this, but religion today is probably the number one source of guilt and disapproval and feeling of failure in the world. The first things that happens if a person goes into a mental institution, they will take Bibles away from them and restrict Christians coming in to talk to them because most Christians are constantly ministering disapproval, guilt, and condemnation and telling them it's your fault. God did this to you because you haven't been studying the word or praying or whatever. That's not God. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. It is your heart that's condemning you and the part of your heart that condemns you is the conscience. You know, I hadn't got time to go into this, but I'll just throw this out as andeology. You can reject this and it won't change anything I'm saying. But if you want to, you can study it out. But I believe that when God created Adam and Eve, He didn't create them with a conscience. I don't believe they had this intuitive, constantly judging themselves and weighing everything. Am I right? Am I wrong? I don't believe that man was created with a conscience. When they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's descriptive of the conscience. And I believe when they took of that, that's when this, this constant judging ourselves and weighing everything we do came into being. That was a result of the fall. But now it's a part of every one of us. We do have a conscience. And it says over in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 that God has revealed himself from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man and it's intuitively known on the inside of them. Verse 20 says, so that they are without excuse. There is now, God has used this conscience on the inside of every person and every person knows right from wrong. They can get into these mind games and try and convince themselves, oh, there's nothing wrong with this, but in their heart they know it's wrong. They can say whatever they want to, but every person has this conscience. But your conscience isn't completely reliable. It can be corrupted. The Bible talks about that we can have a conscience that has been seared with a hot iron in 1 John chapter, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 4. You can sear your conscience. Paul said he had to purge himself from an evil conscience. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says, purge yourself from an evil conscience so that you can enter into the holy of holies. Talking about into the where the Lord is, into fellowship and in relationship. You got to get out of your heart condemning you. You know, again, the people that are here are fanatics. Or either you were brought here by a fanatic. <laughs> this is the Thursday night crowd. This isn't the nod to God Sunday morning crowd. You believe in supernatural miracles. You believe in the power of God or you wouldn't be here. And you know, praise God. I've seen miracles. I've seen my son raised from the dead after being dead for five hours. Most of you believe that. You don't disbelieve that God does miracles. And if somebody fell over dead here tonight, and if I said, well, I've seen God raise people from the dead. I'm going to pray and I believe that God's going to raise them from the dead. Most of you would say, go for it. You'd be right in there with me. But you know, I could lose 99% of this crowd by saying, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and you pray for them. And some of you who are excited about me praying for them and wanting to see a miracle, all of a sudden your excitement would turn to dread. Your faith would turn to unbelief. What happened? What changed? Did God change? You know why people would change? It's because you don't feel, you haven't assured your heart there is condemnation. You don't doubt God's ability, but you doubt that God would do it for you because you are constantly disapproving of yourself and living with a constant state of disapproval. And thinking God wouldn't do it for me. You might think God will do it for me. The only reason you'd think that's because you don't know me as well as you know you. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. I don't deserve the power of God. See, I have to assure my heart based on who I am in Christ. The word condemned, another way of saying it, you know, we condemn a building. It means it's not fit for use. That's another very descriptive way of saying how most people live. They live with a constant sense of condemnation, not feeling fit to be used. I tell you, when I pray for people, I prayed for people tonight. They're healed of cancer, jumping up and down, the pain's gone and stuff. I have to sit there and assure my heart and say, I'm not praying in the name of Andrew Womack. I'm praying in the name of Jesus. And I'll often say in front of people, Father, you gave me the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And you told me if I lay hands on the sick, they will recover. And I'm saying those things for my benefit. I'm assuring my heart. I'm saying that, Father, I believe your word. And there's some of you that wouldn't say that. Oh, I would never say something like that. That's the reason you aren't seeing the power of God operate in you. I'm telling you, God, there is no condemnation. And the Holy Spirit is the comforter. And He is put on the inside of us to constantly, 24 hours a day, even in your sleep, be encouraging you. Say, get up, go again. You can do it. He's an encourager. He's a comforter. He is not a condemner. There is zero condemnation from God. And you have to assure your heart. Once you start, the Holy Spirit will take hold together with you and He will help you, but He's not going to do it for you. You've got to start encouraging yourself in the Lord. 